And so the title being America, What's Right and, and What's Wrong. Now, I'm going to ask you, I think you, you've heard this slogan plenty of times before. Have you ever heard it said, Make America Great Again? Right? You heard that? And so now there's a, another phrase that's being kind of touted, put out there a lot. We are in a struggle for the soul of our nation. You heard that? It's, it's being put out there a lot, a lot. So, make America great again. We are in a struggle for the soul of our nation. And are also hearing at this time that the choice has never been clear. You know, I mean, it's like they're at two different kind of ends of the spectrum. You know, there's like there's clear contrast. But as I thought about those phrases, I thought, I don't know that those phrases are all that much different, are they? Make America great again. Would that suggest that maybe we're not quite as great as we once were and we want to be restored to our greatness? Seems like that's what's being said. And then on the other side it says, we are in a struggle for the soul of our nation. Well, does that suggest that maybe the soul of this nation is in danger? Seems to me like that's what's being suggested, right? So here's the question. How do we make America great again? <laughs> and how do we preserve the soul of this nation? So I want us to think about that this morning. And in the course of this lesson, I already got my fact checker in place. Colby is our resident history teacher. <laughs> I said, you're the fact checker today. Because <laughs> we're going to take a little stroll down memory lane in regards to our nation. And just kind of examine that a little bit today. And see how that kind of all plays into this political season that we are in the midst of. So there's a couple of questions that I want to ask you as we get started this morning. I don't know if you still read a newspaper or if you get up in the morning and you turn on the TV and watch the local news or if you do like I have a habit of doing, you get up in the morning and pop the laptop open and see what's happening in the world today and what's happened overnight. But what if you got up in the morning and you saw these headlines? Divine providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. What if you saw that headline? Or how about inquiries by our reporters reveal that almost every state legislature has now passed a law requiring all elected officials to take this oath. I do profess faith in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, His only Son. I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. How about that headline? How about legislation was passed today in Congress to affirm the Congress of the United States approves of and recommends the Holy Bible for use in our schools. What do you think the reaction would be? You think the ACLU would say, <laughs> we're going to court over these, you know? Well, I want to tell you something. 
Every one of those statements are historically accurate and correct. The first one was written by John Jay, and he was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, our first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The second one came out of the state of Delaware, but others adopted it also. And with regards to the office holders, that they take an oath affirming their Christian faith. And the third one, Congress in 1782 approved the use of the Bible in our schools and paid for them with tax dollars. And then in 1844, someone sued to remove them. And the Supreme Court ruled. Listen to this. Why should not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly and so perfectly as from the New Testament? (laughs) You've got a book that teaches morality any better than the New Testament? Let me see it. Matthew 7 and verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We're marching in the streets over social justice. And we've got it right here. These were the people who helped to establish this nation. These were the people in the early years that helped America to become the greatest nation on earth. It seems as though now we've kind of strayed from our roots. I worked in the school system for a while. And our school systems and our colleges have become so secularized and so distanced from Christianity that they don't even want to talk about how they impacted the forming years of this country. Covered up, denied, we don't want to talk about it. So, that's why I decided today we'll take a little history lesson. (laughs) We'll take a little stroll down memory lane. And we'll combine some of our political people from the past and their statements with what Scripture has to say. It's in Psalms 127 and verse 1 that the psalmist says, except the Lord builds the house, they labor in in vain. Except the Lord builds the house. Well, I want to suggest to you that we should keep that in mind. And whenever we think about America, that should help guide us in what's right and what's wrong. So first of all, we're going to talk a little bit about what's right in America. Well, one of the first things I believe that was right among those earliest settlers that came to this new world, they came here looking for religious freedom. Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Now stop and think about that. They traveled great distance at great risk to come to a new world that they weren't quite sure about, 
in order that they might have religious freedom, that they might be able to openly practice their religious faith. In 1620, those new arrivals signed what is referred to, and you can look this up, (laughs) the Mayflower Compact. And in the Mayflower Compact, it said that they had come to this new world for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. Now that's 1620. Okay, so kind of keep this time frame in mind also. It's also recorded that during those very early years, that as they came and they started to settle and they formed these communities and so forth, one of the very first things they would do in erecting buildings is they would build a meeting house. Now sometimes there were community concerns that were addressed in those. But it's also recorded that in those meeting houses, that when things were going hard, they would get together and they would pray for God's guidance and help in those situations. And that when things were going well, they would get together and they would pray and give thanks for God's blessings. In 1643... As more people came and they recognized that they had to have some kind of coordinating guidance, they drew up what is referred to as the New England Confederation. These are the words. Whereas we all come to these parts with one and the same end name, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. (laughs) That's contained in that. We're starting to form larger communities and so forth. And we recognize the aim and the goal that we came here. And we want to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to enjoy the blessings of the gospel in purity and in peace. That's our roots. That's some of the founding fathers. It's there. It's documented. They came. Religious freedom. They could worship. And they could practice their faith. Secondly. They also had a desire to be pleasing to God and do His will. Proverbs 14 and verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, some might take a look at this and they might say, yeah, well, here's, here's a guy that's a preacher and so he's kind of given one side of this. So we want to be fair and balanced, right? <laughs> well... They came here. Conditions were hard. And as like many of us, we enjoy our creature comforts, don't we? And so it was said that by around the 1640s and so forth, these are hard winters. These are hard times. There was disease. There was sickness. There was a lot going on. And so it's admitted... And it's recorded. Focus 
kind of shifted. We got to take care of me, you know, type of thing. But there was a couple of things that was going on. England at that time still (laughs) had a great deal of influence on what's going on in the new world. And they still had control over large, large sections of ground. And the king had an interest in this new world. So, guess what? <laughs> for those who might be related, for those who might be good friends, so with, and for those who might be politically connected, the king granted large sections of ground became huge farms and plantations. You got to have somebody to work on that ground. England had a program at that time. You know what? We got a lot of people in prison. You know what I think we ought to do? I think we ought to ship them to the new world. And they can work on those farms and those plantations and they can be indentured servants that's what happened there was something else going on at that time too slave trade increased and so there was an opportunity for material prosperity and cheap labor and the focus shifted from spirituality to material prosperity That's 1620s, 1640s, and so forth. Declaration of Independence is not going to come along till when? <laughs> 1776. So there's about a 140, 150-year period. There's a lot of things going on in this new world. And people are still coming and things are developing. And what really started out with spiritual focus now has kind of shifted and it deteriorated And it's said that by in the early 1700s, 20s, 30s, people weren't attending church like they used to. But then something else happened in the late 30s and 40s. There were men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield and Gilbert Tennant and John Wesley. They saw what was going on. And they started preaching. And they started pounding those pulpits. And it was said they went from cities to towns to villages to streets. And people started listening. And people started coming. And in fact, so many people were starting to listen and starting to come that that gave birth to those open air meetings that we hear some about. You can look this up. You can read this. There was that time frame 1730s, 1740s in this country that is known as the Great Awakening. And history records thousands were turning out to hear. Thousands were baptized. Benjamin Franklin, know that name? (laughs) This is what he wrote. He said, it's wonderful to see the change so soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. It seems as if all the world is growing religious. 
so that one could not walk through the town. He's talking about Philadelphia. So that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms being sung by different families. Old Ben said, this is great. (laughs) So a religious influence was once again spreading. And it spread throughout the colonies. So why would we note that though? The reason why we note that is for this. This is the 1730s. This is the 1740s and so forth. Within a generation, it's going to be the Declaration of Independence. It's going to be the drafting of the Constitution. These are the people that came out of this era. That's why that's significant, and that's why that's worth noting. George Washington's personal diary. It's recorded, it's there. Let my heart, gracious God, be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties which thou require of me. Again, I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and hast given me assurance of salvation. First president of the United States. University of Houston down in Texas a number of years ago. Political science professors over a period of about a decade, about 10 years. They decided they were going to search the writings of our founding fathers. Good idea. I like it. 15,000 writings that they scoured over. And they wanted to determine the primary source of ideals behind the Constitution by identifying the sources most often quoted. In other words, we got to get into these men's heads. Why did they write what they wrote? You know what they discovered? Over 90% of their quotes were based upon... You got it. The Bible. The environment, the culture, the influence of those men who wrote the Declaration of Independence and then framed the Constitution. Political science professors wanted to know what are these guys thinking? (laughs) Well, they were thinking about God's Word. They acknowledged God's supreme rule over men and over nations. Daniel 4th chapter. The most high rules in the kingdoms of men. Now let me suggest also, once again, fair and balanced, right? These men weren't all perfect. They weren't all devout Christians. But they shared a common conviction. As stated, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, we'll mention some others in a moment. And they acknowledged that God was the supreme ruler. The Declaration of Independence begins this way. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where did those rights come from? When they wrote the Constitution, they said those rights come from God. And the reason why that's significant is because man doesn't give them and man can't take them away. They can do their best to try to encroach on them. (laughs) But they acknowledged those rights, that's from God. They went on to say, listen to this. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Why do we have government to begin with? (laughs) Because we want to guarantee the rights that God, we want to protect the rights that God has given us. So we institute governments to protect the rights that God has given us. And the power for that comes from the governed. (laughs) You ever hear the question nowadays? When did the government quit working for me and I started working for the government? (laughs) Isn't that the kind of way it feels? They went on to say, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world. And they conclude, and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We appeal to God. We recognize Him as supreme ruler over man and nations. And we ask for His divine guidance and providence, His protection. And what we're setting out to do. Well, the First Continental Congress. You know how that went, don't you, Come. <laughs> there was a lot of discussing and fussing and carrying on and yelling and pleading and begging. And at one point, somebody said, We need to get down. on our knees and pray. So John Adams wrote his wife about this. Once again, it's been preserved. He wrote to Abigail and he said, the most amazing thing occurred. He said, even those stern old Quakers had tears running down their cheeks. They stopped, they paused, they prayed. Wouldn't it be great? They could do it again. Samuel Adams said at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, he's the father of the American Revolution, right? He said, we, this day, we have this day 
restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. (laughs) Desire to practice their faith, be pleasing to God, and acknowledge God rules in the kingdoms of men. I want to say something else too. We have three branches of government, right? There's the executive branch, and there's the judicial branch, and there's the legislative branch. What were these men thinking? How did they come up with that idea? It didn't come from England. They had a king. Didn't come from other parts of Europe. They had dictators and so forth. Isaiah the 33rd chapter in verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. There it is. He's our king. That's the executive branch. He's all our giver. That's the legislative branch. He's our judge. There's the judicial branch. Hey, what if we form a government that has three branches like that? Think it'll work? It has so far. Our Constitution guarantees our religious freedom. Listen to this once again. The First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States says, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. You hear a lot today about separation of church and state, right? And whenever they talk... (laughs) This cracks me up. Whenever they talk about separation of church and state, what are they worried about? You know what? There's a real danger here that religion may have some kind of impact on our government. (laughs) I'm going to read that again. You think about that. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. There will be no state church. They had to escape that. So the government is not going to go into the business of religion. Keep them out of it. They don't belong in it. They shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. (laughs) People run around trying to protect the government from religion and the First Amendment says we got to protect religion from the government. (laughs) It's funny how you can... Thing. It was intended to protect the church and faith from government influence. In 1892, the Supreme Court declared our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based on and must include the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible for it to be otherwise. To this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian, 1892. Well, that's been a little while too, right? 
nowadays the Supreme Court. Do you think they'd issue that statement again? Well, all I can say to that is this. Keep praying. <laughs> Supreme Courts come and go. But the law of the Lord stands forever. So what's right about America? Well, our forefathers sought religious freedom. They sought to please God. They acknowledged God as the supreme ruler. And our government is patterned after Scripture. And the Constitution guarantees religious freedom. And even if government tries to take it away, we are citizens of two kingdoms. <laughs> and God's kingdom rules. And so if they try to take it away, we must obey God rather than men. So, America, I forgot to advance that. You want to read that right quick? <laughs> I knew I'd have too many slides for today. I'm just not used to it. So, America, what's wrong? You know, we face a lot of challenges. We do. Some think our greatest concern ought to be the economy. And that's a concern. And some think, you know, the answer is you've got to have a strong military. Well, that's, that's to our advantage. That's true. But that's not the answer to everything. Some think that our greatest threat is foreign nations. Some think it's terrorism. Some think it's social unrest. So is our greatest threat coming from without? Or is the greatest threat coming from within? In the book of Micah, in the third chapter, Micah gives some warnings, but one of the first things he does is he lets them know that God is a God of mercy. And God is a God of love. And God would desire to extend His mercy and His grace and His love. But He lets them know also that He's a God of judgment. That there can come a time if when people continue to rebel and turn away, there will become a time when judgment will follow. And we've got that recorded for us on the pages of Scripture. It happened in Noah's time. It happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened to Israel, didn't it? And so what Micah does is he points to three areas of concern. He points to corrupt politicians or kings. He points to compromising preachers or prophets. And he points to complacent people. So there's your areas of concern. And in Micah 3 and verse 12, he talks about Zion being plowed. That's a metaphor for judgment. When you plow ground, when that blade goes in, it turns that soil over. It's overturned. And he said, Zion is about to be plowed like a field. Judgment's coming. I'm going to turn this over. I'm going to overturn this. 
So let me get in the book of Micah. In Micah, chapter 3, and verse 1. Hear now, heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. You know what he's saying? Your leaders are abusing your people. You prefer evil over what is good. And that's not right. God requires righteousness from those who are in leadership positions. In Proverbs 29 and verse 2, it says, when the, righteous are rule, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. In Proverbs 8, he talks about how he says by me, and he's making reference to not the Lord, but wisdom is what he's making reference to. He says, by me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. That's by wisdom. He requires honesty. In Proverbs 17, about verse 7, he says, lying lips are not becoming to a prince. Liars and leaders are not the same thing. Proverbs 25. They are to separate themselves from bad influences. You can look these up. Proverbs 25, verse 4 and 5. And in Proverbs 31. He's talking about moral and personal purity. He says, do not give yourself to women illicitly. And he says, do not go the ways that will destroy kings. That's immorality. And in Proverbs 31, he says, speak for those who can't speak for themselves. What's your responsibility towards the weak? You're to take care of them. So one of the areas of concern were the corrupt leaders. Micah 3 and verse 5, he says, Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth. What does that mean? So, well, you got these preachers out here. You got these prophets out here. And they're saying, it's all good. It's peace. He says, and while they chew with their teeth. In other words, they got plenty to eat. I'm doing just fine. So I'm not worried about anything else. Instead of telling people what they needed to hear. You think that's a problem in America today? So a lot of churches are more interested in recreation and in entertainment than they are in talking about the moral issues that are corrupting our society. 
one person said, you know, preachers ought to be more concerned about where they are. They ought to be more concerned about where they're going instead of where they are. You thinking about where you are? Maybe I'll think about where you're going. And then there's complacent people. Micah 3 and verse 11. He says, her, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? So in other words, you see that your leaders are corrupt. You see that your prophets are just prophesying for pay. And you turn your head and go, eh, it's okay. God's saying he won't he won't tolerate that. So sometimes we talk about a Christian nation. And we got real upset during the last administration when it was said we're no longer a Christian nation. Remember that? <laughs> well, that stirred folks up. Well, Israel had godly roots. But look what happened. America has godly roots. But look what's happening. And so we've got to give consideration to those who lead. You've got to give consideration to those who preach. And you've got to give consideration to the people. It's kind of like, if you recognize it, what are you going to do about it? You know, we sometimes look in all kinds of places for answers. But I want to suggest to you, I'll advance that again. The answer is not in the White House. The answer is not in the State House. The answer is not in the courthouse. Guess where it is? The answer is in God's house. It's always been there. It is still there. But the things that we learn, we just have to take and we apply. You hear the slogan, Make America Great Again. Now you're hearing the slogan, we are in a struggle for the soul of our nation. So let me ask you, how are you going to make America great again? How are you going to save the soul of this nation? Maybe they need to take a stroll down memory lane and ask yourselves, how did we get here? Because if we don't know how we got here, then we don't know where we're going. So what's right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What's right? Righteousness exalts the nations, but sin is a reproach to any people. What's right? God still rules in the kingdoms of men. What's right? We have a government that's based upon scripture, but we have to exercise it. And when government infringes upon what God has given us, then we appeal to a higher kingdom. What's wrong? I think we can see corrupt politicians. And I think we can see compromising preachers. And we have to look at ourselves and we've got to ask, are we complacent? A government of the people, by the people, for the people.
So I don't want to close on a downer, okay? <laughs> so I want to give you a little good news <laughs> going away. It's been a little while, but it was 1999 in a place called Calvert County, Maryland at a high school graduation. Always in times past, they had always had a prayer at the close of graduation. Well, there was a student that filed a complaint about that, and so the ACLU had to get involved, and they said, if any person leads a prayer, we will file a lawsuit against that person. So some of the students, members of the student body, not everybody, but a lot of them, they got together. They said, okay, we'll just, uh, at the close of graduation, we'll just have one of the students come forward, one of the leaders from our high school class, senior class, and we'll just ask for a moment of silence. So a young lady stepped to the microphone and she said, can we just have a moment of silence? Everybody bowed their head. And they got quiet. It got real quiet. But they weren't done. <laughs> and somebody over to one side said, where everybody could hear. They said, our father... Who art in heaven. And from the other side, hallowed be thy name. And from another area, thy kingdom come. And then people started joining in. They recited the entire Lord's Prayer. The reporter that was there and later wrote about that, he said it was like a thunder that rolled across some 4,000 people that were there that day. And he said, you know what? He goes, that day, those that were there discovered something. You know what they discovered? He said they finally discovered for themselves what we the people means. You want to get rid of corrupt politicians? You want to get rid of corrupt pre preachers? <laughs> Compromising preachers? We the people. We can do that. The Bible still says, Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. It was Edmund Burke, or at least it was attributed to Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. That's the truth. So America, what's right? Well, there's a lot of things that are still right. But there's some things that's gone wrong. that have gone off the rails. And the question is, what are we the people going to do about it? We've still got God's word. His word still stands. We just got to ask, are we going to follow it? I want to extend the invitation this morning that, it, that it be any and all that are here. It was Jesus that said, He that believes in me and is baptized shall be saved. Have you done that?
If you haven't, we would encourage you to do that. And if we can help you do that, that's what we want to do this very day. If your child has gone and not been living as you should and you need to come back to him, confess those sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. If we can help in any way, you let us know while together we stand and while we sing.